0: welcome back everyone to the film analyst my name is adnan and this week once again we're going to be discussing a range of commercial awareness stories before we get into season three and the first episode of season three rather i just want to quickly thank everyone for their support we've reached about 535 players across all platforms and all episodes and we've surpassed more than 120 followers i think it is on spotify as well so thank you so much for all of that support i highly highly appreciate it and i hope that all of you are benefiting especially as we approach a few commercial awareness competitions and your application season um coming to a climax in december for a lot of the summer and winter vac schemes. so i really hope that you'll enjoy this episode without further ado let's actually discuss which stories we're going to be focusing on so the first has to do with ESG lawyers and how a lot of them have become hot commodities in the legal market. As the UK moves towards net zero and investors become more cognizant of where they're putting their money and how that affects the, cl- the climate, we're going to be looking at two specific moves as case studies and this has to do with Travers losing its ESG head of, or head of, head of environment to Freshfields and Kirkland and Ellis losing its uh, ESG uh, head of ESG as well to Paul Hastings so we'll have a brief look at that followed by a look at FCA bringing cryptocurrency tokens within the the realm of uh, regulation so far as it relates to financial promotions and we'll get into the implications of that and the last one we're going to be looking at is a firm offer being made by Apollo Global Management which is a private equity firm one of the largest around Uh, for the restaurant group PLC or what I'll call them TRG PLC and they are the parent company of Wagamama and a range of other leisure and food chains in the UK and across the world. So that is what we're going to be discussing this week. I hope that you enjoy it. Let's get right into it. So let's address the first story on our plate today and this has to do with ESG Lawyers. And in the news today, or this week rather, we had a word that Travis Smith has lost Douglas Bryan, who's a senior, uh, sorry, D- Douglas Bryden, and he was a senior lawyer that's focusing on ESG regulatory issues, so things like ESG governance, transparency, obligations, crisis events, etc. At the same time, uh, and actually he went to Freshfields, and he's, he'll be joining their team. <clears throat> At the same time, we have Ruth Knox moving from Kirtland and Alice to Paul Hastings. And she's also a regulatory focusing a regulatory lawyer focusing on environment, governance, and other risks. So why do I find this particular topic interesting? I mean, obviously the fact that both of these events happened uh, around the same time, some could say, okay, well it's just a coincidence. But I think that what it indicate indicates regardless uh, of whatever fact is that there is a demand for ESG-oriented lawyers. And that's mainly because we've really started to see within the past five to 10 years, people taking an increased interest in where their money is going, how they're structuring their transactions because of certain initiatives. And that includes things like the Sustainable Development Goals from the UN, the Paris Agreement, Net Zero Goals. There's just been a lot of campaigning all across the board a lot of pressure from investors to ensure that their funds are going towards net zero causes or at least that they're not exacerbating the current climate crisis so now let's look at some of the reasons why or what ESG lawyers might do rather and perhaps key points or case studies that we can look at that just show that there is demand for this in the market and how lawyers get involved so one of I mean, this this comes in the background of massive cases such as the Client Earth versus Shell case. And that is a particular case where Client Earth, which is an activist group, environmental activist group, they bought shares in Shell and they had tried to bring what's called a derivative claim <clears throat> against the directors of Shell to essentially tell them that, well, okay, well, you're not really promoting the success of the company and promoting the success of the company under the Companies Act includes taking into consideration environmental factors. And that was a claim that was quashed by the courts, mainly because of the the remit of or the extent that Section 172 uh, goes in terms of giving directors their own sort of um, autonomy to decide what they think is best for the company. The courts can't really step into that. But what this actually shows is that you have <clears throat> you have this shareholder that's trying to bring a claim on behalf of the company against its directors and trying to say that, well, this is a breach of your director's duty. So that's quite significant. Uh, people are saying that this is the first time that this has happened globally. And it's very interesting to see that, uh, who knows, we might see a new type of shareholder activism that's oriented around ESG. So that's more or less the background of all of this. And not only do you have that, you have quite a few things, for example, like the PR risk of of greenwashing. And this is something that people are really beginning to to consider. So when when I was attending an event, and uh, this was just before my internship at Freeths, uh, Emily Settle, who's a partner at Freeths, senior partner in terms of uh, corporate M&A and private equity, she mentioned uh, when I'd asked <clears throat> about, you know, greenwashing and how it impacts specifically PE and uh, m and she had mentioned this is something that a lot of PE funds are beginning to take into account, especially the PR risk of greenwashing, the risk of fines. All of these different things are are finding them their, their way in, as a consideration when, uh, even before they decide to acquire a company, they're really looking at, well, what is the PR risk? Do they have any greenwashing concerns? And during the due diligence stage, this is where you'll be able to find things that perhaps some might consider greenwashing. And then from there, they might have to mitigate that using documentation, uh, such as the share purchase agreement. And they might have to disclose that so they can claim against that in terms of warranties. And by by that, I mean essentially the acquiring company. So these are a few things that you'll also find. There's also, for example, the introduction of the sustainable finance disclosure regime or regulations rather in 2021 in the EU and this is essentially telling <clears throat> asset managers <clears throat> and other financial institutions that they need to make certain disclosures about the activities including for example how their investments may be adversely affecting uh, the the environment and this is quite significant because you need regulatory lawyers to say well how much disclosure is required Meanwhile in the UK you have things called TCFD disclosures and this applies mainly to listed companies and they have to advise about certain climate risks insofar as they relate to their company. Then you also have things like taxonomy regulations in the EU. This once again deals with things like greenwashing. There's a very intro- interesting article on this regarding sustainability-linked lending from AO. So you can just search up Greg Brown. He's written an article on greenwashing clauses in financing documents and essentially what will happen is if you're terming a loan a sustainability-linked loan and you're turning that to the entire world if it tends not to actually fit a certain taxonomy not necessarily just in the UK but maybe the EU elsewhere you could be said to be greenwashing and that uh, requires you to either declassify it and this is these are the kinds of clauses that you're seeing in these particular lending agreements, or you perhaps have a discussion with the borrower about, about how to, to shift the metrics within the sustainability linked uh, loan. So, for example, if they were to meet a target and let's say uh, you incre- you decrease the margin uh, on, of interest that they're paying on the loan, if they don't meet it, they increase it. So, this is more or less how you find su- uh, sustainability coming into finance as well. And actually, very recently, the Loan Market Association. Started suggesting um, drafting. So the the Loan Market Association, for those who don't know, is a trade body that assists with standard documentation, which is drafted by Alan and Overy, Clifford Chance, and they they're helping lenders, borrowers, and other institutions, lawyers, etc., by providing this standard documentation and guidance. And they also have their own guidance regarding green loans and um, sustainability-linked lending, etc. But even from this as well, you have Things like green finance, where the proceeds are used exclusively for green purposes. And again, what green is, that needs to be defined. And you often have auditing companies that are told to come along and make sure that the fa- the, the proceeds are actually going to those green causes. You also have blue finance as well, um, and things like blue bonds being issued. So all of these are, are interesting factors to look at. Uh, and perhaps it just tells you that if you already have the skill set, You will be in demand as an ESG lawyer um, when you're going into practice. And perhaps this is something, and I say that everyone should look into, because the next example that I'm going to tell you about just shows you how far and wide ranging this can be. So, for example, you have uh, in real estate, you might be thinking, oh, well, what does real estate really have to do with ESG? But there is an entire framework for dealing with contaminated land, and as solicitors acting for a buyer for example you might have to look at the possibility of certain land being contaminated and if for example there is no sign of the polluter uh, there is certain legislation that could actually make the buyer themselves liable for remediating the land and that leads to discussions about apportionment of liability and once again if if you're acting for a lender and let's say there's been you're dealing with a developer let's say the developer goes insolvent you might, as what's called a Class B person, also be subject to re- remediating the land. But again, this is quite rare, generally speaking, but these are considerations that you must have, especially when you're developing. There's like green or brownfield sites or you know, abandoned factories that might have chemicals and everything. Now you have to remediate that land, develop that land, and then that can become student accommodation, for example. And this even... Aside from that, it can also range within real estate to things like EPC ratings and how, for example, there's new legislation coming in about renting out certain accommodation that has a lower EPC rating for the purposes of the regulations and how that could be unlawful. So that's more or less the context within which this sits and a really, really interesting Um, development. And you'll also see certain firms like Adelshaw Goddard asking about uh, similar questions relating to the environment within the applications. And I invite all of the listeners to just at least have a look at it. And that'll really, in my opinion, just add a bit of spice to your particular application, your skill set, and it'll make you uh, in line. It'll, It'll put you in line with what the clients are currently discussing. And many clients are really passionate about this. So it'll Allow you to understand from their perspective, and therefore render the best advice. Now, let's very briefly look at the FCA regulations regarding cryptocurrency and how they've been brought within what's called the financial promotions regime. So, very before we even get to that, um, perhaps I'll tell you why I'm discussing this particular story. When I was looking at stories that are happening, you know, within the last week or so, um, I was considering talking about Metro Bank, but I do realize that I want to ensure that I'm discussing a range of topics. And I just opted for some securities regulation or just investment regulation, because I don't think we've really uh, discussed that extensively. So if you are looking to qualify into uh, regulatory investigations or simply uh, advisory in terms of regulation, I'd say this is a really good part of the podcast to listen to. And it'll give you a really good idea of how a regulatory lawyer functions within uh, the ecosystem um, of investments and uh, much more. So let's have a look at this particular story. And the title essentially uh, states that the FCA has issued 146 alerts in the first 24 hours of new crypto marketing regime. And to go a bit into the context, the FCA, for those who don't know, is the Financial Conduct Authority. And this is a body that was set up um, to essentially regulate and was given powers to regulate, uh, and uh, look at things like securities, regulate banks, regulated mortgages, a range of things that it can do, and it has been given the power to uh, do things like investigate certain companies, etc., and to ensure that they are meeting <clears throat> the they're meeting the standards uh, when it comes to the regulatory framework. And the, the main place that the FCA gets its power from is what's called the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. If you're doing the LPC or if you're doing, and I'm not sure if they're doing this in SQE, but you will come across this and you'll see two main sections that really govern quite a lot of the infrastructure of investment as a whole. So there's Section 19, which is a general prohibition that you cannot perform regulated activity. Um, unless you're authorized or you're exempt. So this stretches far and wide. And uh, there's also scope for this within banking and, you know, solvency issues. But that's really governed by the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which is, again, related to the Bank of England. And then you have the main one that we're going to be considering today, which is Section 21 of the Financial Services and Markets Act. And this is basically talking about financial promotions. And to give you a bit of context or the rationale of this particular provision, it's essentially prohibiting any Tom, Dick, Harry to go and promote investments to people just anywhere in any form, and thereby invite or induce them to engage in investment activity, because a lot of retail investors may not be, for example, familiar with the risks involved with such investments. And as a result, this is trying to protect mainly retail investors from things like, for example, you know, fake companies that have been set up and they told, "Oh, you're going to make a fortune. You will never have to live on a paycheck." You know, this, uh, all of these different, uh, you know, financial influences that we're seeing nowadays. But these these things do happen, and uh, this is what the FCA is essentially trying to to catch, and what the regulatory framework is trying to catch. And unfortunately that has been happening a lot with crypto as well so for those who are not familiar within crypto there's been a lot of what are called pump and dump schemes so you have someone that uh, has a really wide control of the market share uh, of a particular coin they're they're really basically in charge of the the issuance the volume that's trading on the markets and they artificially you know they they hype up the coin they artificially inflate the price And then they they automatically sell. And then because they're selling and everyone can see that, um, oh, well, they're also selling, then the price of the crypto essentially decreases. So they've made a very handsome profit. Meanwhile, you have people that have been, in quotes, rugged, and those people are losing money. And there's been several of these schemes. If you want to look into some of them more, you can watch someone on YouTube called Coffeezilla. And he's someone who goes around and he... Uh, essentially looks for scammers and a lot of these scammers unfortunately are also in places like crypto but it's not to say that there's not legitimate activity helping um, that crypto economy sort of uh, become more and more common within the UK and outside the world I mean uh, outside the UK and across the world and this is one of those things that the regulators are trying to balance they want to be able to have the UK as <clears throat> one place where people can do business. There's a uh, innovation, you know, startups. And this is actually what the city minister was saying, is that he was basically saying to the FCA, you need to relax. Uh, and he sent them a letter three days before the regulation came into force. And he was just telling them that you need to really have show restraint, in his words. And there is a bit of that back and forth between those two entities about how this is going to impact UK investment. So long story short when it comes to cryptocurrencies now uh, and there's obviously has a certain few that this applies to as well the key thing is that when you're marketing cryptocurrencies the the FCA has said that you need to either be authorized by the FCA or the promotion itself has to be approved by an FCA authorized person or the crypto firm has to be regulated by the FCA under money laundering regulations. And in that case, you can make financial promotions to investors or another exemption applies. So some of the main ones that I've come across while working are things like high net worth investors, self-certified, sophisticated investors. So these are people, for example, on the high net worth side, earning more than a hundred thousand pounds a year. And they have net assets of more than 250,000 in the last year. And then self-certified sophisticated investors are those who have, for example, been in finance, private equity, business angels, etc. Um, and or they've invested in unlisted companies twice. And then you have sophisticated investors who have been advised by financial advisor about the significant risks. So this is a massive story, especially because the FCA claims that they've been warning firms since February. And in 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 some firms' defense. They some firms, the way they thought it was applying was to do with, okay, well, this is only marketing material. But simply put, if there is a link that you're putting on your website that could potentially lead you to directly investing in cryptocurrency, that could potentially be caught by this legislation. And that's what the FCA is saying. And why is this significant? Uh, it's because uh, if you are making financial promotions and you're not using one of the four legal routes that I mentioned, this could result in you breaching uh, the Financial Services and Markets Act, and you breach that prohibition, and it simply puts a criminal offense, and it can result in a fine or a two-year prison sentence, or both. So it's quite quite hefty um, in terms of uh, the potential penalties, and that's why it's quite significant to clients. Now, let's also look at some of these other factors, and again, this is where regulatory lawyers come in. Um, obviously these 146 warnings, I've had a look at some of them and the FCA is essentially warning people against these firms. So that's a massive, massive PR risk, especially if you're dealing with retail investors who might not understand the nuances of what exactly is going on. So regulatory lawyers will help you set up those particular portals so that you have for example a segregation between your main page and the page where the financial promotion is shown and it has all of the health warnings so for any of those who have done investing before you might have seen all capital at risk uh do not invest unless you're prepared to lose all of your money all of these things are uh literally you'll find them in the regulations so if you're interested you can look at the financial promotion order Uh, the Regulated Activities Order and um, the Financial Services and Markets Act, if you're a pure nerd and you just want to look into that specifically. And also read the the Practical Law Practice Note if you're really interested in regulation. And obviously, another significance is the fact that there's possible criminal liability. So if the FCA starts to investigate people, they're going to have to hire lawyers, and these lawyers are going to have to perhaps look at how they can uh, build a defense for those particular companies that they're representing, or perhaps the directors as well. And another thing is also just there's only four ways for them to be able to now promote to their investors. And some may feel that, okay, well, our retail investors may not feel or other investors may not feel comfortable if we're promoting to them, but they don't get the same um, because we're not, let's say, under the exemptions, you don't need to be FCA regulated to promote. So, for example, high net worth investors. So. That what that means for retail investors is that they don't have the protection of the financial uh, services compensation scheme. So that, that basically gives you access to a pot of roughly £85,000 per head um, if a financial firm fails to carry out its FCA obligations or its regulatory ob- obligations. And they don't actually... Um, have access to that. So maybe some might think that okay well it's better to actually just get regulated with the FCA as a firm, but that that's really expensive. Some of these applications can even be up to 12,000 pounds, 14,000 pounds, and the FCA has to look into your business. It can take a really long time. Um so that is if they choose for that, if they opt for that, regulatory lawyers will take them through that process most likely. And this again something that you would expect to see uh, in terms of advising your client about what the best way to promote your cryptocurrency in the UK will be. And obviously, one of the biggest risks of this is obviously um, if you conclude a contract and it is on the basis of an illegal activity. So in this case, there's been a financial promotion and that's in breach of uh, FISMA. Or the Financial Services and Markets Act, then that contract may actually be unenforceable. So now imagine if you're trading at really high volumes, and now you can't enforce that contract against your retail investor. Um, that becomes a real liability for a lot of these firms. And where lawyers would really come in is just essentially looking at the marketing material, looking at the websites, writing advice notes, and this is probably where the trainee would get involved, and you'd be probably doing some research, you'd be looking into some of the case law, does this really count as a financial promotion or not, is this an invitation, is this an inducement, and that's more or less what really happens when you're looking at financial promotion. Now we are on to the last story of this segment, or this episode rather, of The Firm Analyst, <clears throat> and... Yes, let's get right into it. The Restaurant Group PLC, which is the the parent company of Wagamama and several other food chains, including what used to be um, Frankie and Benny's and uh, Chiquito's before they were sold off, <clears throat> it's being bought by Apollo Global Management. And um, this is a really, really interesting acquisition. I'm going to try and go into as much depth as possible. I'm going to tell you how you can get information about it. Um, And obviously this is a live deal, so I do have to preface this as usual uh, because we're all lawyers here, I guess. (laughs) And I will say this doesn't count as uh, financial advice. Uh, I'm not recommending or suggesting that anyone should subscribe for or purchase any shares in any company. This is purely for informational purposes only. And the documents that I'm going to recommend that you do read, obviously those are subject to Marked abuse regulations so do read any disclaimers and do not share documents simply put but those are public documents and they are publicly accessible so just follow the instructions very clearly um, if you do come across any pages but anyways let's get right into it and um i might as well start off with where i did find this information and the key thing is when a public company is being acquired in the UK, it is subject to what is called the takeover code. And this is a very important thing to realize, especially if you're dealing with public MA. So if you are applying to Slaughter & May, which is, again, one of those firms that is well known for its um, public m advisory work, then this is definitely one of those things that I'd advise you. And also a lot of US firms, there's a lot of PE transactions that are happening where they are taking UK companies private. So this is a very significant thing. Same thing for Adil Shaw Goddard. AG advises on a lot of these deals. And I believe last year, they advised on 20% of all public acquisitions in the UK. So that is quite a significant amount of deals. But yes, let's have a look at how you find out this information. So obviously, I, I read this in the Financial Times. And I automatically tried to look if it was a public company or not. And... I found out it was a public company, Restaurant Group, TRG, PLC, right? And the key thing about this the takeover code under Rule 2.7 states that if you're making a firm offer for a company, then that's something that you need to announce. Um, so you have what, these things called rule, rule 2.7 announcements. And that's where I get majority of my information from. Again, that document is it contains insider information, so you can't just go around sharing it. But obviously, for informational purposes, if you really want to understand M&A, I honestly don't see an issue with you going through that information. And um, yes, so now um, there is that, but also on the company's page. If a company is being acquired, so even DWF, they have pages that have to do with the offer, and this is part of Rule 26.1. So you have to disclose any documents relating, for example, to the financing of the deals, corporation uh, agreements. You have to disclose certain positions that you hold, for example, certain options that you have over certain shares. And this is all just about transparency and creating um, equality for, for the shareholders and all parties involved in public takeovers. And you'll learn this most likely during your LPC, if you're doing the LPC and you're doing the acquisitions or private acquisitions um, module. And this is, if you want to go into an interview and show that you really understand how these things work, then I would highly recommend just going through even some of these older documents are where the deals are already closed. So let's look at who's actually advising the parties. So Kirkland and Ellis is advising Apollo and the bidding SPV, which is called a Bidco. I won't go into PE structuring right now. But you often use, if not always, use uh, a separate company, a special purpose company, to acquire the target company, and that's mainly done for tax reason and what's called structural subordination when you're dealing with finance. And that's something that we'll definitely get into a bit, perhaps on a different episode, and maybe I can do a deep dive into a previous deal, um, a previous public m and deal that perhaps closed earlier this year and we can do that on a special episode. So do let me know if you want that to happen and just message me. And on the other side, we have Slaughter and May that is advising the restaurant group. And the background of this transaction is obviously that the uh, TRG acquired uh, Wagamama as well in 2018. And there was obviously a bit of controversy surrounding that. And uh, what has happened until now is that they were... Uh, and by there I mean TRG, we're facing increasing pressure from what are called activist investors. So these are people they are either funds or they are shareholders, uh, high net worth investors. They, they take shares in companies and they per- perhaps have their own view about the way they want the company to be run. So that's how they'll be really pressuring the directors, for example, um, or perhaps looking to work with the directors where that's an amicable relationship uh, to try and essentially move the company in the right direction. So there's a lot of pressure on the directors of TRG to either sell some of their assets, their, their restaurant assets, and that's what they have have done with Frankie and Benny's and uh, Chiquito, uh, or they were told to consider changes in the company structure and the leadership. And this was specifically pushed by the Hong Kong-based fund called Oasis Management, and they have they currently hold seventeen point eight percent of the shares in TRG, and they've also given an irrevocable undertaking that they're going to vote for the deal. Um, so that's that's a very key particular thing. And once you look at takeovers, irrevocable undertakings are basically just saying, okay, as a shareholder, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I agree to this acquisition, and if we go for a general offer, that's not a scheme of arrangement, for example then I'm going to vote in favor of this particular one. So I think they've gotten about 19% of the shares, uh, Apollo this is, and they have basically stated that that's the amount that they've gotten in terms of irrevocable undertakings. So 19% of the shareholders are fully on board. And what's also happened is that the company directors have unanimously recommended this. And they, they basically said that this is, this is the best deal that they're going to get considering the premium and, uh, uh, all of the relevant other terms of the transaction. So the reason that Apollo wanted to acquire the company as well, they've taken an interest in some of these UK leisure assets and um, uh, companies rather, and they were looking to really diverse, diversify their portfolio into that particular sector. And this is one of the the investments within the UK and they, it's one of the first of its kind, I think, uh, for Apollo specifically within the UK. As most of the leisure... And uh, food investments were in the US. So this is really interesting to to see. And they just basically said that, you know, taking it private, which is what they're going to do, so they're going to delist the company, that's going to relieve a lot of public market pressures, and it's going to allow them to look at the long-term or medium to long-term horizons, and that allows the company to grow organically. So this is one of those, those key things that they were looking for. Now, in terms of how the transaction has been structured, it's being done through what's called a scheme of arrangement. So for those who have done company law, you might have looked at this, you might have not looked into it, but a scheme of arrangement essentially is it's a court-sanctioned scheme, and it includes two meetings where you have shareholders approving a certain plan for the company, and it doesn't necessarily have to be used for M&A, it can be used for restructuring, and people tend to use this mainly because only 75% of the shareholders when they vote in favor of it they're going to bind all of the shareholders so if 75% vote to uh let the acquisition go through and to implement the scheme and the court thereby sanctions the scheme as well then all of the shareholders are bound so if if you that, that means you could be forced to shell, sell your shares and this is opposed to to what's called a general offer where if you want to for example uh acquire the company and let's say you have a stubborn investor that does not want to let go of their shares, then you have to get or acquire 90% of the the voting shares for you to do what's called squeeze out minority investors under the Companies Act. And that's quite a lot. Um, and it's better for them, actually, or most investors, uh, or most takeover counterparts, to actually look towards a scheme of arrangement if they want... Uh, that had to, to happen. But obviously, it's quite, it's quite complex. And uh, what tends to happen is that most of the M&A, public M&A transactions happen through a scheme of arrangement. Um, I think the same thing is happening for DWF. And for several other transactions, it's around two thirds of them. But they, there are other ways to structure this. And of course, this doesn't work for hostile takeovers. And contrary to popular belief, hostile takeovers are not actually as common. But if you do come across one, and I do recommend if you do if you're doing a seat in corporate M and A, and you actually get to see a hostile takeover, it's a really good experience, uh, because of the way you have to structure the transaction, probably a lot of sleepless nights, but it's something that you can take with you throughout your career. Now let's also look at a couple of, um, the other terms. So, in terms of the financing, uh, what I found really interesting was the fact that the the company is being valued or. They're going to to pay at least five hundred and six million pounds for the transaction. And they've managed to secure 260 million in interim financing or what's called bridge financing. And I'll explain obviously what a bridge finance loan is in a moment. But in terms of what we've discussed earlier about higher interest rates, I find it really interesting that this is just over half. So some other firms might have obviously opted for a higher leveraging. But obviously, this is really interesting to me. Um, I haven't really looked at many transactions before, but I would have expected generally more. But now that interest rates are high, it makes sense that they're opting to actually add just about half of the equity to this particular transaction. And by there, I'm referring to to Apollo. Now, I briefly spoke about bridging. So I'll discuss, and I'm I'm not saying that this applies to the specific transaction itself, but in general, what you tend to find bridging loans used for is where the the syndicate wants guarantees from subsidiaries of the public company, or let's say another group company. And this becomes a bit controversial under company law. Um, because if you are giving, for example, if a subsidiary of a public company is giving guarantees, that is that could be seen as financial assistance. And financial assistance is basically where a public company is um, you're yeah, literally giving financial assistance in some way, shape, or form to acquire its own shares. And this doesn't really apply to private companies. So one of the techniques that some PE firms use is that they use a bridging loan uh, and this is uh, secured by the, the Bidco and the others. And once the company is acquired and is taken private, then they refinance that bridging loan and they then allow the subsidiaries to give these guarantees so that could have happened here could not have happened there's not really much information out there but that's just to give you a bit of an idea um, about that particular <clears throat> aspect of the transaction but yeah I do encourage you for strictly educational purposes only if you want to find out more about deals like this then have a look through I mean there's there's a lot there like you know what does Apollo plan to do with the business um, in terms of things like governance. Uh, what are they planning to do about employment, what are they planning to do about pensions, all of these things you'll find them in, in the document themselves and um, you'll also find for example the conditions so there's very common conditions within a lot of these public MA transactions, so for example no material adverse change so if they're signing on there might be for example um, a massive litigation case that comes through and you know these things could be defined as a material adverse change uh, but I would highly encourage you, look at some older transactions, have a look and see how they're structured, and obviously use practical law to help you, use LexisNexis to help you. So when you're going into an assessment center, you can surprise possibly a few partners um, or whoever's interviewing you, if they're a corporate M&A partner, because you have sufficient knowledge about how the system actually works and how a lawyer plays into it. Because a lot of people might just go into the interview and think, oh, well, I'm going to talk about the deal and I'm impressed by the deal because it was $1 billion. And it doesn't really add much to your answer or your credibility. But if you say that, okay, well, this is done on a scheme of arrangement and here's why I think they did that, then that's something that I think there's there's a lot of value in there. So that's what I would recommend. And uh, that would wrap it up for this final story. Thank you once again, everyone, for listening to this episode. I look forward to once again... Come back next week with a, a set of new stories, and I am in the process of finding out how we can do something like a sort of quiz every single week, and possibly winners chosen at random can come onto the podcast to discuss stories. So if, if you do like that, please let me know um, whether it's in the comments below, on Spotify, etc., um, or the Q and A section, uh, or you could just message me directly if you're interested in seeing. A quiz element to this particular podcast and perhaps maybe within this next this season or next season I might also be looking to get some some experts from the legal field and beyond uh, to, to get their thoughts on what exactly is happening in the market so thank you once again and I will see you next week god willing